Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Joanna Bell. Joanna is an accountant and director at Bell's Accountants, a firm based in the historic county of Kent. Joanna, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hi Scott, thanks for having me. It's um, an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the air with us. Now, Joanna, the purpose of this podcast series, first and foremost, is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand is what that word leader actually means to you personally. Of course. So for me, leadership is is mainly about responsibility. Um, You obviously have a responsibility for the people you are leading in terms of their welfare, their progression, their direction. Um, And and that means that you have to take into consideration all those factors with whatever decisions that you make. Um, So you can't make decisions just based on profit or your own benefit in business. You need to consider the impact on on all those people because they look to you for, for direction. Absolutely right. And in times such as the current situation with COVID-19, for example, where there is so much uncertainty, I think that leaders being very self-aware of the fact that people are looking to them for answers and they may not necessarily have all of the answers at the moment, that can really put them under pressure, can't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think the key for me so far has been communication um, and honesty and transparency. So it's important to keep communicating with your team as much as you possibly can with all the changes that are going on um, and also to help them feel connected because obviously we're all dotted around at the moment working from home, um, but predominantly so that they feel safe and secure, that they know that things are being dealt with and considered properly. And then also to consult with them because we as leaders do not have all the answers ourselves. So I've been regularly putting out questionnaires to say, well, you know, how would you feel about this if the government say we are safe to go back to work? Is that something you would feel happy to do? Or do you prefer to continue working from home, etc.? Just to kind of gather a pool of opinion because I think as a leader, people will listen to, to what you say and obviously do what you ask of them because their their jobs depend on it, but they may do it resentfully or not not feel happy and comfortable and that could mean you to lose valuable members of staff. But it's important to keep that consultation process going. It's hugely important and it's usually important to, to maintain communication as well, especially when we're no longer meeting together physically. And when a leader does have um, a close-knit team and relies on that very much community feel, I suppose, if you will, that can um, actually be uh, be quite a challenge. But keeping people with you and allowing people to continue to go along with you is also incredibly important. And so I think one of the key things that leaders have to take into consideration, especially during this time, is they've got to make clear that they do continue to care about their employees and that their opinions really are valued, as you've said there, Joanna. Absolutely. And and mentally, I think it's a huge struggle for people to be at home in the office. And one of the things we've been looking at is people's, how people are feeling about making decisions independently. Uh, Because obviously, historically, when we've been in an office environment, they've just been able to ask a quick question of their colleagues, Mm. oh, what do you think about this? And it, it can lead to a feeling of quite 
being quite isolated, working remotely, um, because they don't have the ability to ask those quick questions. So we have been quite reliant on technology. We've we've set up sort of WhatsApp groups for departments and individual offices. We've obviously set up Zoom so that we can have face-to-face conversations, either individually or as departments or as offices. Um, but to some extent, well, I have had some feedback from my team to say that we feel we've communicated better than we ever have done because we've made a conscious effort to have structured communication where we've got scheduled team meetings throughout the week. Um, that maybe wasn't happening as much before. And also it's across the boundaries of the office because we're a multi-site operation. We have four offices in total. Everything was quite insular inside the individual offices. They ran things their own way, whereas now we're, we're having across-the-board team meetings and actually learning a lot from that as well. So positives have come from it, definitely. They do say, don't they, that you learn an awful lot more about yourself and your team when you're facing times of adversity than when things are going well. And it certainly seems in your case as if uh, that's um, proven true. Indeed. And one of, one of the sayings I of always adhere to is that in times of challenge, it doesn't change people. What it does is brings out what's already there. So I think you really mm. see what people are made of in times like this. You you see the commitment they have to their role and to you as, as a leader and to the business as a whole uh, because it's very much on them now. You know, they, they are working independently. I cannot be watching over their shoulders to see that they're putting their hours in. And, and what we found actually is that there's been an increase in productivity um, also because of the care they have for their clients. You know, we're, we're accountants, so we've seen an awful lot of businesses, our clients who we've acted for for a long time who are in huge times of stress and struggle and they're relying on us to feed back to them the information that is needed to get them through. So what help is available to the government from the government? How can how can they access it? Um, they're, they're needing us to advise them on the way to go. So if anything, we've mostly down tools on the work that we do, the accounts and tax work, just so we can be there to reach out to as many as we can to advise and help them. There's a lot of merit, isn't there, in giving people a little bit of independence to sort of take on their own leadership in a way, isn't there? And especially this time, because as you've said, it has actually increased productivity in certain ways. Um, But also, I think having people sort of take on their own leadership, go out of their comfort zone, especially. I mean, it's proving uh, to be quite um, a fruitful part of their um, overall development, isn't it? And it's fostering resilience in these people. It's not necessarily changing them, but it's really bringing out the best in them, if you will, as you say there. Absolutely. And for, for me, I think that is the, the best demonstration of leadership is that there is the right balance between autonomy and accountability. So you need to give people the freedom to do things the way they want to do them and practice and do their role in the way they want to do it. But you also need to hold them accountable. So that involves sort of making sure that their targets and goals that they're, they're reaching, and that's for them as well as as well as the business as a whole because they'll most likely have their own targets in terms of personal development and things they want to learn and things they'd like to be doing more of and things they'd like to be doing less of. And unless you keep those lines of communication open, you you won't be aware of that. And I think that's how people sometimes lose good members of staff Mm. because they're they're not aware that actually that person didn't want to be involved in that element of the business anymore. They found it boring or whatever. They'd rather be involved in going in a different direction or there was some training they'd like to do you know they're not learning anything new so do you think that during this time you've had to fundamentally adapt your way of leading or do you think that it's actually brought out the strengths in it and maybe just made it just that little bit better 
I think it's brought out the strengths, definitely. Um, I think initially there was a panic, and I think from our element that was because we didn't know how many clients were going to be adversely affected. So obviously our, mm. our service is more needed than ever from clients, but we have probably at least 20% of them who have lost all of their income entirely. Their businesses have just gone overnight, so that's restaurants, gyms, you know, those in the leisure industry, the hospitality, retail, um, and we we didn't know how many were going to obviously not be able to pay our fees or reduce services, and so that was quite difficult to plan for in the coming weeks and months, um, and obviously even helping clients apply for the business interruption loans and things like that. You know, the banks are asking for forecasts of how much they need, and it's, it's almost impossible to answer before the Prime Minister was able to give the, the roadmap because we didn't know how long they were going to be closed for or you know what the social distancing measures would be and whether they would be able to implement them. So it was it was quite difficult to assist them initially. And as I say, that, that caused us a, a worry as to what it would do with our income. But I think overall it definitely has shown the strength of the business as a whole and brought the team together because we're all working for one goal and that is to help the clients who have obviously been there for us for so many years. Mm. Now, for the benefit of those uh, tuning into this, we are um, recording this um, episode on the 11th of May 2020. And that comes just one day after uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson presented his roadmap out of the uh, the UK lockdown. And he did, didn't he, Joanna, provide some provisional dates as to when some businesses can hopefully expect to be recommencing uh, their operations. Um, has that proven to be um, a source of encouragement for yourself and your clients in the short time since then or is there still a little bit of a lack of clarity do you think? I think a bit of both I think for some sort of small shops and some businesses who know they're able to adhere to social distancing there was some some reassurance there Um, for others it's been more of a worry Uh, I think namely the ones that were not mentioned. So gyms were an example of that. Mm. Um, we've got a few sort of independent gyms. No mention was made of those. Um, so we're not sure yet when they might be able to open. And the other thing I think was the fact that the Prime Minister spoke of the traffic light system. So the one mm. to five, which did, I, I think we all maybe knew that from common sense, but it hasn't been clarified as yet. But that to a lot of people indicated that this was not a, Thing that had an end. It, this is a, an ongoing thing that is likely to be well, we're let out for a little while and then locked down again and then let out and then locked down. So again, from a planning perspective, from a cash flow perspective, very, very difficult to plan for if you're reliant on what level of threat the country is at to know whether you're going to be able to trade this week or this month. Um, and lots of them, you know, they still have rent to pay. I think that's the main issue with businesses mm. with premises. Um, that's the thing that they're going to struggle with the most. And it gets to the point, although there's loans and things like that available, but it's how far you want to go to get indebted when you don't know really if you have a viable business at the end of it because everything depends on how long you're having to go without any income. Um, So, yeah, I think a bit of both. Definitely more clarity is needed, but it it was said at the time that more clarity would be given, so we Mm. can only really wait. The government are tackling this. They're trying to lead us through this in the same way as we're trying to lead our people, and it's obviously unprecedented times, not something that they've dealt with before. 
Exactly right. And um, it is important um, in any sort of walk of leadership to maintain transparency and maintain clarity. But if you could be uh, prime minister just for the, uh, the day, Joanna, is there anything that you would fundamentally do differently, do you think? I actually probably would have restricted the help a little more. Um, as an accountant, obviously, we've seen how many people have taken up, for example, the furlough scheme um, and and other help, the grants and things like that. And I don't feel there's been a lot of policing in terms of it going to those who need it. Um, it, it has been open to all, which is, is brilliant, but I think there are a fair few businesses who will have increased their profits because of it. You know, they, they will have been given a grant mm. or given the ability to furlough staff that were deemed non-essential. Um, and that's great. But I think there would have been more in the pot for those who desperately need it, i.e. their income stopped day one, um, had had it been maybe more sector-specific or more controlled. Um, because I know now already the Sharks are speaking about the furlough scheme being unsustainable. And that is mm. just simply because of the level of take-up. Um, and I know sort of almost all of our client base who've got staff on the payroll have furloughed some or all, um, and that was that decision was made very very quickly before there was any any indication as to how much of their income would be impacted by it. Um, and they've not done anything wrong at all in, in making that claim. They're fully entitled to do that because it was available to every UK business. Um, but the, the difficulty of that is obviously the overall cost of it. You know, I dread to think kind of what the what the tax bill is likely to be next year. Um, for me, for me, I probably would have. I, I think the level of help is, is incredible, unprecedented. But I would have made it more targeted um, and more sort of means tested rather than a kind of help help everyone who asked for it kind of kind of approach and I think that was a lot down to the speed because they needed to get that money out the door quickly knowing people were depending on it um, that meant that there couldn't be too much policing of it um, or too much complication as, as to who's eligible and who isn't. I think you raised some very interesting points there uh, Joanna and uh one thing I would like to touch on as well is um, for those younger generations of people who are perhaps looking to venture into business themselves or maybe are about to take over uh, leadership roles within uh, different businesses, um, based upon the experience that you've had, not just, um, of course, um, running your own firm um, for the last 11 years, but also as an award winner um, of Kent's Business Woman of the Year accolade last year, what sort of advice would you have to give to those younger generations of people going to venture into business? There's a Darwin saying which I always refer back to and that is that it is not the strongest of the species that survives but the one most adaptable to change um, and that to me has, has never been truer than in the current situation with the COVID-19 but also throughout my business journey. It's it's always been about adaptability. You know, new technology, new regulation will come in that you have to adhere to and you've got to be able to adjust or you will be left behind. Um, and lots of the businesses that I've purchased, I've, I've purchased from retiring accountants. Um, and those accountants have not been able to adjust. You know, they've, they've not wanted to adhere to things like making tax digital. They've not wanted to invest in the infrastructure to improve the technology. Um, and that's why really their businesses have, have gone scale, whereas ours is constantly innovating. We're constantly trying to find better ways to serve our clients so that we can do things in a, in a better way and a more efficient way to save them time and save them fees. Um, and the other thing I'd say is anyone can do it. You know, one of the reasons 
that I was glad to have received the Business Woman of the Year Award was really because I wanted to prove that anyone can, can make it in business. I, I'm from a council estate. Um, I was I was never giving anything. I, I went to a comprehensive school. Um, I'm 33 years old now, um, and we run, as I say, an accounting practice over four sites. I employ nearly 30 people. Um, there's nothing that you can't do if you put your mind to it. My my eventual goal is to make it into the top 100 accountancy firms in the country. And I do believe if I manage to do that, then I will be the only female sole director to have done that in, in one lifetime. Um, because generally they're multi-practitioner firms, usually male-led, um, and usually sort of been going for several generations before such time as they, they receive that accolade. So I would like to do it to, to prove to any young young person generally, but also specifically young women, um, that they can make it in financial services or indeed any industry they choose. I think that's hugely important uh, because um, a lot of um, people, and especially men in the profession, um, have said that there is an underrepresentation of women within their financial services. So I think it's absolutely integral that we start to see more of an intake in future. And again, if we think about the future before we do wrap things up on the programme today, uh, Joanna, um, do give me an idea um, of what you envision the next year holding for yourself and for Bell's accountants. And also tell me what you hope to achieve, not just in that time, but also beyond the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Absolutely. So um, initially what we're looking to do for the next 12 months is just really cement the relationship we have with our clients, which is already very strong and very close. We're not one of those once a year accountants where we just produce figures in hindsight. You know, we're very much involved in producing management accounts, cash flow forecasts, business advisory services to help our customers to grow because obviously the more they grow, um, the more fees that they are paying to us and the they're recommending other clients to us, which is fantastic. So we want them to succeed because that benefits us also. Um, but mainly for us, it's about cementing those relationships to make sure that we are the go-to people to help them through this situation. We are in a unique position as accountants where we're seeing their numbers live. Um, we can advise them on how they can make more profit if their debtors are increasing and they need to do some more work on credit control and all those things, the right accounting can literally mean the difference between success and failure. So right now, that role, we're taking it more seriously than we ever were. Um, so that's a very important part of the next 12 months, I think, during the pandemic. And then after that, it's about continued growth. So we're looking to reach as many people as we can. Um, another one of the benefits of, of us putting the infrastructure in place to all work remotely is that we have embraced the technology even more than we were doing before, which has meant that we are now confident we could serve a customer anywhere in the country um, because we, we don't need to be able to see them face-to-face. We can do everything remotely. We can set them up with technology such as Receipt Bank where they can take photographs of all their receipts on their phone and that will come through to us so we can process from our end. And we can have Zoom meetings so it's as though we're face-to-face. So that to me is quite exciting because it's opened up a future where we're not localised. You know, we're not restricted to just the people in the local area. We can help people a lot more further afield than that. And, and that, to me, would be what we're, we're looking to achieve, a, a more national marketing campaign in the, in the months following the pandemic. 
certainly seems as if there's a great deal of ambition there, even amid all of the uncertainty, uh, Joanna. And what I think would actually be fantastic for the listeners who've tuned into this is if um, when we start to see those hopes borne out over the next few months, we can maybe have you back on the air and actually catch up on how the uh, the business is getting on. Um, but even though we are just about out of time uh, today, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on uh, the programme with us. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the listeners' benefit. It's been a huge pleasure. Not at all, Scott. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I very much enjoyed speaking to you and reflecting on our experiences. And if it can, if it can help someone else, then all the better. I think um, it certainly will. Um, for anybody um, tuning into this um, today, um, I have to uh, say some of the advice here uh, would be very, very well to heed. And also, Joanna, before you do go, do continue to stay safe and take care with everything still going on because it is still a very uh, difficult times that we're living in, of course. Absolutely. You too, Scott. Thanks again for the call. Thanks ever so much. That was Joanna Bell, an accountant and director at Bell's Accountants in Kent. Uh, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Geoff Hurst, a former professional footballer who played as a striker. Sir Geoff has scored over 200 league goals during his club career for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup following his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Jeff. And that's coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. 
he'd work with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you just think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team 
it is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but 
overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you too. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um... Uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it, it, uh, um, it did but make then again, laugh, if you laugh If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, 
I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to. Uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even, uh, certainly as a team, if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the, 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they they are not doing so well he's the best example of management I've seen we've seen we've probably ever seen and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Green was, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the, um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and, and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? 
Well, I think we were I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back to an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind in this, uh, single mind in this dedication dedication to the job um, thinking about that 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 role that job in leadership all the time it's a huge part of your life but it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements. And it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.